Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Can you tell me your name, uh, title, and what you do here at MIT? My name is Ed Boyden. I'm an associate professor here at MIT, where I direct a neurotechnology group. Um, and I work with people across all different disciplines, science and engineering, on a quest to understand and repair the brain. Great. Um, I was kind of interested in, uh, it, it, we were just talking, and I was interested, because you do have to communicate with a lot of people, so like on a daily basis and at different levels. Um, can you describe the different ways that you have to think about communication in sure. your job? <clears throat> so in my own research group, we have clinicians, roboticists, chemists, um, people who trained in the humanities, people who've trained um, in mathematics, everything in between. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand and frame problems so that they can be solved. This is a very difficult thing to do because Looking at a problem a little bit the wrong way can mean the difference between somebody coming up with a solution and somebody completely missing the boat. And so very often what I think is most important is sort of having uh, empathy for the person you're talking to and also simultaneously empathy for the world at large. So, so if I'm trying to convey an idea, like here's a deep problem in the understanding of the brain, and I'm trying to motivate a chemist and a roboticist to develop some new technology together, then I have to sort of think about how do I project the value that's achieved by solving this problem into their reference frame to make it re reality for them, basically. And that's difficult because you kind of have to understand how a given background perspective or individual will receive a message. And so I call it sort of extreme empathy. You need to have extreme empathy for your listener. And I think that only comes with a lot of experience. You spend a lot of time trying to understand how somebody might um, respond. You have a model of their mind in a way. And, uh, for example, you know, somebody who is a clinician might be motivated by a certain kind of, uh, way to help people, whereas somebody who, um, you know, is more motivated by liking to do a certain kind of skill, like programming a, programming a computer, might have a totally different, um, you know, set of motivations. And it's both important and dangerous to sort of try to, to, understand what people uh, are, uh, are really motivated by in order to make sure that they can work together and solve some bigger problem. That's interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've, it, it sounds a lot, I just got out of a leadership program, so it sounds a lot like leadership skills. Like there, there's a little bit of like knowing, or at least my reflection is on leadership, which was like knowing how to move individuals around so that they can complement each other and, and work together. Yeah, it's all about maximizing people's positive impact on the world. You know, in a lot of 
graduate students and postdocs come to me with great skills. And I almost think there's a point in one's life where you've you learned all the skills that you, you know, want to, at least for now, and now you want to go solve some really big problem, right? And then the question, though, is how do you find the plan of attack? How do you even, you know, you have this big mountain and you have a little crowbar. You have to find some place in the mountain to start prying the rocks apart from each other. And, um, you know, where do you begin? It can be very daunting. And so part of it is trying to also frame the problem from an emotional standpoint. You know, making something sound easy can backfire. Sometimes you really want to point out just how difficult something is and prepare people for failure. And um, I often ask people to think about aiming for a constructive failure. It's probably going to fail, but you'll know what to do next. And I think from that comes wisdom. You know, I think that a lot of people in my own group, for example, will spend a year trying things out and learning a lot, but not making much progress. But then all the dots will start to align, and then we can start to actually make new things that have real impact. Did that understanding of uh, constructing toward, uh, around constructive failure, did that come naturally to you, or was that, did you intuit that and when you started research, doing research and, and work, or was it something that you had to learn? I figured out the constructive failure strategies and other strategies that I use to help guide people to solve big problems um, a bit by trial and error. You know, I would, um, I would see other people talk about how simple it was to solve a problem. So, you know, join my group and you can solve this problem really fast. And, and I tried that out. But the problems that I wanted to work on were much harder and it backfired. People would be like, well, I couldn't solve it in, in one day. I feel bad now. And so I said, all right, that didn't work. So then I started uh, trying the opposite. I mean, all right, this problem is really annoying. We're going to be really frustrated tackling it. We have to bring it down to lots of parts. We're going to have to really deconstruct them one by one and go after them. And it's not going to be fun, but the impact is going to change the world. And something amazing happened. People learned how to deal with these problems. And they toughened up and were able to go through the, constru the constructive failure process and make their way to the other, the other side and get, get to the wisdom phase. And it's great to see these people as they graduate, move on, and start their own um, you know, jobs, groups, companies, whatever. Because I feel like in some ways, in an era where skills can be learned, you know, you can read about things on the internet and so forth, what's maybe most important is this ability to pick really good problems to work on. Because there's lots of things people can do, but doing the very most important things is still very tricky. And I often feel that, um, you know, what was that old saying by, I think it was Marcel Proust, that, you know, seeing new landscapes uh, traveling to new landscapes, I'm going to botch this quote, <laughs> but uh, is, you know, it's, it's as important, if not more, to see with new eyes, right? And I feel like that's kind of important. You know, a problem might look intractable from four different points of view. And then through wisdom and struggle and, you know, a bit of out-of-the-box thinking and collaboration, you find a fifth plan of attack and bam, you can go for it. Um, kind of going back to empathy uh, for a minute, was there, I mean... Some, I'm an analytical guy, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, I sometimes have problems with empathy because I tend to um, assume things that might not be true. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if you've run into surprises uh, around that with people, like it or strategies to, to develop empathy. <clears throat> um, yeah. Also, I do a lot of volunteer work outside of my MIT duties. For example, I'm one of the four interviewers for the Hertz Foundation. And what that means is they award five-year PhD fellowships for people who want to go do applied sciences. And so over the years, I've done these, this interviewing for about a decade now. I've learned how to ask questions to learn you know, what really people are interested in. And a lot of it means listening. 
So I'll often start an interview just by asking somebody, you know, how do you get to where you are and where do you want to go next? And I'll just sit there. And I feel like it's very easy to want to say something. Um, but sometimes it's sort of sitting back and listening and people will tell you things. You know, that's a powerful, a, part, a big part of communication, I think, is, is knowing when not to communicate and when to listen. And, uh, and also knowing what's important because not all information is equally important. And you both have to convey what you think is most important and also listen and acquire what you think is most important. And that, there's a bit of a, it's like a game of tennis where you hit the ball back and forth in a conversation. Um, but, you know, the goal is not simply to, to have a random walk. The goal is, well, some, sometimes it is, but most of the time you're trying to figure something out, right? Like, hey, is this the right path to go down? Or um, will this person really enjoy this job? Or is this, you know, uh, the right direction that science should be headed as a whole? Um, thinking about, uh, I kind of want to talk about your TED Talk. Sure. Because I think, I think a lot of our audience uh, for the course uh, are going to be interested in that. Because okay. I, I would assume... It, well, I don't know. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. I'm new to MIT, so I have no idea. But like, I would assume that that's kind of like a great avenue to start disseminating your work. But I w could you talk to me a little bit about the process, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about how that has implications to the rest of the field of your work. Sure. Let's see. So uh, I was invited to a small conference at Google, of all places, and I gave a little talk about you know what one of our areas of research, which is that we've invented a way to control brain cells with light. And this is really powerful because now you can understand how the brain computes by activating cells in the brain. And thousands and thousands of researchers in academia and industry are using this now to study the brain. And recently, therapeutic trials in humans began also to use these tools to help uh, cure people. So um, I gave this talk, and uh, this gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, and said that was about 90% of a TED talk. Do you want to give one? Which later I found out meant that's about two percent of a TED talk. <laughs> Want to give one? <laughs> but um, of course, he, if he said that, that I would probably might not have signed up. And uh, that was about uh, several months before TED, and about two to three months beforehand, I started to work on it. I was lucky to have a lot of help from people here at the MIT McGovern Institute, Julie Pryor and Charles Jennings, for example. And we decided to make some animations to tell the story because. You know, we're working in little tiny nanoscale things that we put into neurons to make them light controlled. You can't just hold it up in your hand. You know, it'll, it'll be invisible. You have to kind of find a way to convey this three-dimensional dynamic story to an audience. And to uh, us, we finally decided that that required animation. So we started working on a script and took a lot of time to figure out what the story should be. Um, because I really wanted to lose nothing of the hard science. But I also wanted people to be understanding of it, and I also wanted people to be, at least to some extent, entertained or interested. And that's difficult to balance all three. And in fact, I had to resist a lot of pressure from different angles, because people had different things they wanted to see. Oh, if you did this, it would get millions of views. I was like, mm, but, you know, that's not exactly scientifically accurate. Um, or some people would be, oh, well, that's not exactly, you know, the flip side happened as well. You know, there were points in time where we wanted to show neural networks of the brain, but if you actually draw them as densely as they are in the actual brain, it'll look like a gigantic mess, right? You know, in a cubic millimeter of the brain, you're going to have a billion connections between cells. So it's just not graphically feasible to show that. So we had to constantly balance aesthetics, um, accuracy, uh, clarity, and um, sort of conciseness as well, because you only get 15, 20 minutes to give these talks. And uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about what was necessary. I mean, every 
sentence of that talk was scripted. I memorized it because again, with only my talk was 18 minutes. There's not 30 seconds to pause and think of what you're going to say next. It's got to be um, basically uh, delivered from memory. Or if you're really good at improvising, which I wasn't at the time, then you could do it. But um, and we had lots of practice. You know, uh, Juan Enriquez, the curator of TED, who invited me to give a talk. He's here in Boston. He would invite us to come to his house or his company, and we would have to give a talk for a bunch of, you know, people, a lot of whom we didn't know. And they all had to understand it and also agree it was accurate and say they liked it. And that was uh, interesting and a little tense at times because, you know, you're trying to deliver a story, you know, juggling so many different variables, right? There's the health aspect. There's the brain is interesting from a philosophical standpoint aspect. There's the, you know, how do we motivate more people to get interested in the science aspect? And somehow you have to get all those messages projected again, like we talked about earlier, into the value frame, the value reference frame of the listener. But it paid off, you know, and a lot of people have seen the talk. It's been used by many people to teach. It's been used for um, science as explication purposes to the public. It's been used in, uh, to present to Congress, I heard, um, when people needed to explain something about neuroscience to, to um, representatives in the U.S. Congress. People have been using it a lot because you um, can get uh, a lot of mileage out of a well-done communication piece. And um, uh, and I also learned a lot of just about how to communicate in general. Um, I look back at talks I gave before then, I was like, wow, that, that, that wasn't very good. That's, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next was like um, implications. Because I mean, I, I, I <clears throat> one of the things that we've noticed is talking to different researchers <clears throat> and faculty here is that, that and the whole reason this course is getting made is because this is a very underrepresented part of what is taught to in like professional development. Alumni cited communication as one of the most important things that they that, as skills that they needed going into the professional world, and um, yeah, and students were talking about how you know they they would like more teaching to it even yeah. here, and and I'm wondering. I'm really curious, and I was really curious because of your TED Talk, because I'm like, going through that and having known what you presented like before, then having go gone through that, I wonder what kind of connections you made to, like, how communication, well, I guess, how did your communication change since then? <clears throat> well, it really reinforced a lot of stuff that I knew at a cognitive level, but uh, was able to make more part of everyday life. So, for example, as a professor uh, with a large group at MIT, I spent a lot of my time writing papers and analyzing data and planning experiments with people in the group. And if you're trying to plan out an experiment, logical step by logical step, we're trying to write a publication, here's where we began, we did this first, we did this second, these are all communication efforts, right? I think good communication is good thinking, is good uh, science in a way. And... Um, in some ways, when you're trying to think through an experiment or think about data analysis or whatever, you're communicating to yourself in a way. And if you are not communicating to yourself clearly, then you might be actually going down the wrong path. You know, are you doing the right things for the right reasons? Um, and so I've come up with all sorts of different exercises and strategies to help people get good at communicating. Um, you know, when we write publications in my group, I'll often begin, you know, sometimes people have writer's block. Um, but everybody can talk about their work. So I would say, just write the way you talk. Start talking. And they would start talking, and bam. So I, sometimes I just wish I would record everything they say, and we just type it up later. But, um, but then people get a little uncomfortable sometimes. So you, know, you, you, you try to get people to talk, and then they start 
you know, making sense. And it's, I think different communication modalities are very sort of tricky to juggle for some people. Some people are better at writing than talking. Most people are better at talking than writing, I think. Um, but in writing, you, of course, have a great privilege, which is you get to craft your words and reflect on them before somebody else sees them. And that's something that's really uh, kind of a, a reason why it's um, a good place to practice. You know, another thing that I do a lot of now is to really try to help people um, with logical flow. And I'll start people just by writing in almost a formulaic model. If A, then B. Since B, then C. Because C, then D, and so forth. And when, you know what's funny is, although the, the model of writing is formulaic, the, the text that comes out sounds beautiful because it flows logically. People are like, wow, of course. Duh, of course I should do that. That's the best idea ever. And it can be very compelling um, to, to, to have sentences that flow one to the next so that, you know, like a force of inevitability, you get to the conclusion at the end and, and it's uh, compelling and accurate and interesting. So I work a lot on trying to find almost algorithms to help people, to help people communicate. And although the, although the algorithms sometimes seem formal, the outcomes are usually uh, better than if one tries just to write or communicate in some random way by pulling sentences out of a hat. Yeah, the, I've never, I mean, you, you just triggered something. Really. I, I, I'm a trained educator. That's my mm -hmm. background. And mm -hmm. um, it's common to understand learning styles, right? Or at least whatever that is. <coughs> and, and there's always science coming out about that. But I never really thought about communicating styles like, um, and how you can generate but there's different ways that we kind of prefer to start thinking about communication and that that might lead to being able to better communicate in other styles. <coughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. I like that. I'm just saying, yeah, that was cool um, to yeah. think about. Uh, I didn't have a question with that. But the other the question I had kind of after this with in regards to the TED Talk, um, do you have any thoughts on how it might have expanded your broader understanding of uh, communication in the STEM field? Like, like maybe not your own, but, but just <clears throat> it, would this be a process that a lot of researchers could actually learn from? Or is it more like there were parts of it that you think would have been good to know in your own training prior to going through that? Hmm. I think what I learned uh, through the TED process were lots of little things. It wasn't like, you know, do this one thing and everything will be easy. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of us don't like to practice talks because it's boring and laborious and sometimes scary. But forcing myself to practice many times actually really helped. Um, that's the one thing that I think I learned the most was uh, I've always been the kind of like write the talk the morning of or the night before. and But practicing many times, I actually found myself rethinking things like, wait, that sentence doesn't really quite follow there. And then I reorder everything. And, and so nowadays, um, I'll, uh, I, I gave a talk at the World Economic Forum earlier this year on engineering revolutions, how to help um, revolutionize a scientific discipline or a field or an inventive area or some other area um, when it gets stuck. How do you overturn something for the better? And we had a, after the talk, people would bring up all these questions like, oh, I'm in this war-torn part of the globe, and I want to galvanize humanitarian efforts. Um, this sounds like it could help. And I went, really? Wow, I didn't, I didn't think about that, because I was thinking about the scientific and engineering implications. But, um, and that one, I practiced that every day for like a week. And I've given now, I don't know, well, well over 300 talks 
not including all my classes that I teach and all that, but um, every time I practice it, I would change it just a little bit. And over a period of four, five, six um, practices, I, I, I found myself really almost converging upon an ideal message, at least at the time. And now I'm looking back at the script and I'm like, wow, I could have improved it a bit more. But, uh, so that's the thing I learned most is that, you know, communication that's experienced can be stressful because you're critiquing, you're, you're, you're finding flaws, but it's better to find them early and catch them, you know, be your own critic before the world is your critic. Mm. Um, that's, that's one thing that I learned a lot through that process. Yeah. Um, it's interesting <laughs> because I, I keep, through our interviews with different faculty members studying very different kinds of scientific uh, things, um, one of the, I keep getting, a me I, I, my background's in art, so like I'm, I'm getting a more mental picture of yeah. what STEM is as opposed to what I thought it was before I came to sure, MIT, sure. Uh, right? Because I'm not a scientific researcher, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. um, but one of the things that I keep thinking about is like how, and you started talking about the role of communication in your work. And I'm, and it's funny because Yang brought up this idea that audience, you have to be careful with, with creating for an audience with mm -hmm. the scientific method because that can actually have <coughs> detrimental effects on uncovering the truth. Mm. Um, and that sometimes the truth isn't entertaining. Mm. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that because, because I do see TED Talks, um, and there's criticism on what TED Talks are yeah. from different people because it, it does boil down really complex ideas. Mm. Um, uh, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that, like, like yeah. the entertainment factor versus yeah. the, especially for grad students who are just starting and, well, potentially just starting in their, yeah. their journey of professionals. It's a good question. I have a, um, a half-joking principle that I call the principle of applied laziness, which is if something is too difficult to do, it's probably not worth doing. And for example, to, to try to take a really complex topic and force it into a TED Talk and it just doesn't fit and you end up ruining the science, you know, well, that's too hard to do. You shouldn't try it, right? It's, it's going to ruin the science and, and um, you know, backfire in the long run. So uh, when I agreed to do that TED Talk, and, and now I'm writing a second one, um, these were topics that I thought could fit in that format, that could be clearly communicated without losing any of the science. Um, but there are certainly topics where to squeeze it in uh, would cause you to lose so much of the science, or you'd have to work so hard to get into that time limit. I mean, it could take many, many years to try to force it in, and it might not still work. That maybe it shouldn't be, shouldn't be tried. So... Yeah, I have a sort of a way of looking at things where, you know, things that that naturally seem to fit go with those. And if something just doesn't work, then, you know, as long as you have good skills and you tried hard and it wasn't for lack of, of um, trial or, or, or judgment, then, then that's that's that. So. Yeah, I you know, and I keep thinking about how much the role of communication plays in success within a research profession mm -hmm. like and uh yeah yeah and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that like like yeah well let's talk about two examples one is communication to others and then the second one is what i earlier called communication to yourself so somebody might be doing an experiment or doing science or doing engineering or whatever and um 
if they don't stop and try to explain back to themselves what they've done, they might actually miss out on something important that they've done. I've seen people start a project and achieve something really cool, and they just kept plowing on, and they never got what they had done out into the world because they hadn't appreciated themselves what the importance was. And there's so many examples, especially in biology and medicine, where somebody discovered something or invented something, and they didn't stop and appreciate what it was and realize the importance of it. And they just kept going. And you know that not only is bad for one's career, but it can hold back science and health as a whole if, if, if people don't stop and pause and think about things. So I spend a lot of time actually where you know I'll meet with people or I'll have conversations and I'll take notes. And I'll go back and reread those notes. You know, and even if something hit a brick wall and it's a, it was a failure, I'll go back and reread them. I call it failure mining. And that's me communicating to myself, but I think it's one of the most important things that I do because, you know, you know, we had a project that we thought up back in 2007 or so, but we didn't think it was very important at the time. And then five years later, uh, some new graduate students joined my group and we decided to give it a go and it worked great. And now we have a new way of imaging, um, things like the brain, uh, that's going very rapidly into the scientific and medical community. Um, and so uh, I, think, I think sort of reflection and introspection and you know, kind of communicating to oneself is really important. And then communicating to others, of course, is also very important. Um, and again, you can find examples where something didn't have the impact that it could have because it, it wasn't appreciated by others. And I don't think that's important. Um, and so, for example, when we publish a technology, we think very much about different story elements like validation. We want people to trust it. Demonstration, it sends a sense of urgency because it's powerful and people look at the technology and say, wow, I gotta do that, that's gonna help me. And there's so many examples where somebody invented something but they didn't do a demonstration that conveyed a sense of urgency and people said, eh, seems optional. Or somebody did a cool demo but they didn't validate it. And like, eh, seems like it's not very trustworthy. And so again, it goes back to say that good communication is good science. You know, if you think about the what impact really comes from, which is, you know, an idea, an instantiation, a validation, a demonstration, a dissemination, you know, communication actually is happening at every one of those stages. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And also, I like the fact that you mentioned uh, people and other people as a, as a big role in that, almost like um, the collaborative nature helps have different points of checks and uh, uh, reflection. Hmm. Um, and I imagine, you know, going back to empathy, that that plays a big role in collaboration. Like, um... yeah, it does. In fact, uh, I with a, uh, I gave a little seminar a while back on what I called architecting innovation. This idea that problem experts want to solve their problem, solution experts want to apply their skills to something, and by catalyzing connections, starting with trusted pairwise interactions, then building to larger groups from there on. I'm not a big believer in throw 30 people in the room and have a workshop. I don't think that works. People don't share their best ideas. They don't collaborate well when you do that. Um, but if you start building these trusted pairwise interactions and then they can um, increase in scale, then you can actually, in that fashion, build collaborations that can solve very big problems. Yeah, totally. There's this funny Dilbert comic where they, they had... Uh, uh, <laughs> they had... Well, this would, we've determined that this project's going to take 300 uh, days to complete. So we've hired 300 of you, and you all have a day to complete it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're all fired at the end of the day. Uh, right. <laughs> like, it was <laughs> it was this uh, logical fallacy about like uh, management, right? Like like you can't always throw money at a problem to solve it. Um, yeah. Like yeah. like there's other things that go into that that are really important. Yep. Um. I guess finishing up, uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've noticed uh, that that you could say to anybody in the STEM field, um, <clears throat> you know, as you notice things progressing in the last couple of years and the last decade has been a big change in, in communication period. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm wondering if you've, you have any like advice that um, we haven't covered? Hmm. You know, it's hard to give advice in general because I think everybody is so different. And the advice that I give, even people in my own group, can differ quite a bit because sometimes people need different things, you know? You know, there's some people who I think um, are too cautious and should say more, and there are those who say too much and should think more about what they're going to say. I mean, I, I think that there's... There's no general rule, but, but again, I, I have a firm belief that if you really think backwards from the end goal, if you really work backwards from the outcome you want to achieve, and then survey all the possible paths, at least as many as you have patience for, and then make your strategy, make your plan after that, um, that's sort of a general meta rule that can help with communication and with life in general, frankly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, whether somebody's crafting an advertisement to try to sell a product or um, a manuscript to a scientific journal or whatever, you want to be thinking about what you want the outcome to be and then anticipate other outcomes as well. Oops, this might have a side effect. Uh, people might interpret this the wrong way or this is not quite what I want to say. It's not that accurate. Anticipate those things early on. You know, kind of what's the old saying? All great battles were won before they're ever fought. I think that's, you know, Especially true in things like communication. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think one of, that's been a through line within all of our interviews has been like this this idea that you called it um, constructive failure, uh, but that this this idea that uh, humility and letting go of what you expected to happen when something else occurs, uh, and, and and kind of figuring out how to roll with that, but still achieve what you were setting out to do. Um, yeah, you can also craft a culture, though, where constructive failures are celebrated. I think that's something that takes a bit of work. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, often tell people, look, if, you, if it's working perfectly, you know, I can't help you anymore because it's already done, right? I, I want to know what the problems. I want to see the, the chaotic destruction and the, the issues that people are struggling with. That's where I can help. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's hard sometimes to get people to do that. But. No, we were talking about that earlier with the whole concept of this podcast series and communication, which is yeah. like, well, if it was something that was like breathing, we don't need to think about breathing because it's already something we do, and mm. it, right? Mm. Like, but no, there is work needing to be done <clears throat> with professional communication right. at MIT. That's why we're hired to work on this project, and like. Because it's it's a problem, and that's kind of fascinating yeah. in and of itself. Trying to figure out what that problem yeah. is. Well, what's fun, I think. I mean, we've been talking a bit about my TED talk, but the the real trial by fire that 
taught me communication was being, you know, my home department, the school where I'm faculty, I'm in the School of Architecture at MIT. And you might ask, what's a neuroengineer doing in the School of Architecture? Well, it was because when I first was looking for a faculty job, neuroscience wasn't necessarily as appreciative of engineering. And so I was hired by the MIT Media Lab. Um, and now neuroengineering is cool and all, so it's spread. But I had to spend many years where I was surrounded by people who were going to judge my tenure case and everything. And none of them were experts in neuroengineering because, frankly, nobody was, not even me at the time. We were making up the field as we went along. And so I think that's where I learned most how to communicate. And at the media lab, you know, there's about 70 corporate sponsors that fund the lab, and they come by. And you have to explain to an executive who works on cell phones or um, a person who, you know, works on uh, environmental cleanup or something else why you are relevant. And I was an undergraduate at MIT, and I did my undergraduate research also at the Media Lab. And so you'd have Martha Stewart or the Duke of York or somebody come by, and you had to explain in three minutes how you were changing the world. And and this was good training. But what's been fun, because I've been such in a communication-intensive environment, having been an undergrad researcher and a master's student at the Media Lab in the late 1990s, and then being faculty at the Media Lab, you know, during the getting neuroengineering going phase of things, um, is that once you've done it a lot, you actually can start to improvise. That's a lot of fun because you can start to connect with people and motivate people. And and in the end, you know, you know, it is improvisational. You're trying to, you know, connect with somebody, motivate them to solve some problem, let's say, or to change the world in some way. And um, you know, whether you're a professor or starting a company or whatever, that's kind of your job is to, uh, you know, take people who have skills, but need to be directed towards some goal and to collectively achieve that goal. And I still remember, it was probably a couple years after my TED talk when, and also after doing all the Hertz interviewing and the Media Lab faculty thing and so forth, where uh, I realized that I was actually not that bad at improvising. But that was after thousands and thousands of hours of this. It's like the, oh, I don't want to give Malcolm Gladwell all the credit, but like the, 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 that concept of you have to work at it um, and expose yourself to that for a long, there's a lot of hours. It's very rare to just be talented at something um, and without putting work into it. And it's not just the time, though. It's having the context, right? You know, I think 10,000 10, hours or whatever the number that everybody quotes of communicating to other physicists studying neuroengineering could be good. But if your goal is to motivate new people to enter the field and to galvanize a movement that's going to go start a new discipline, then you have to communicate with people who aren't in that field. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. You're the first person to bring up culture um, in, in in interviewing, and I that echoes a lot of what I feel because <clears throat> I teach art, you know, and I, I think if you want people to be creative, they have to feel safe to be creative because creativity is potential failure. Well, what they would consider failure, it's yeah. not it's not what they want it to be. But, yep, yep. <laughs> But it's, it's similar, you know, and I, I always tell teachers it's less about the skills that I'm teaching the students uh, technically and more about creating safety mm. for them to play with new ideas. Mm. Learning has exponential growth when people feel safe to learn. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's where I think setting up that culture is, is really important. I'm glad, so that, I'm really glad you said that. Great, um, great. I think that's all we have. Did you have any questions, Adam? Um, All right, great. Well, it was really great talking to you. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Urich. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast. Brad Comex Live. Brad Comex The Game. 
and a technically speaking comic book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is made possible by GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about GradX as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.